episode 132 of The Cinematologists, Neil talks to Dr. Alison Pierce about her research into women and horror cinema, her newsletter on the subject, and a recent video essay release on the use of food in horror cinema. Neil and Dario also discuss recent watches, including the Eureka Blu-ray release of Alexander Rockwell's Sweet Thing and the Frank Pavage documentary on the mythos behind Jodorowsky's unmade version of Dune. If you enjoy the show, please consider reviewing or rating us on your podcast app of choice, or even joining us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month, where you'll get access to all of our bonus content, including our monthly newsletter. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me as ever, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hello, Neil. Great to see you again, and uh, yeah, just nice to to get back onto the podcasting bandwagon, as it were, after the first bit, first half of the uh, semester. How are you feeling at the moment? I'm pretty good, I think, because I'm over the hump, really. So I'm. Um, yeah, yeah, kind of on the on the downward slope, but I think you're probably still about halfway. So I'm feeling I can see the end in sight. I'm not sure about just, you. Just yeah, just got into uh, open learning week as we call it, reading week. There's always a, a big discussion about whether you have reading weeks, but I actually think they're a good idea, and it just gives you that little bit of respite, especially because I'm doing this introduction to film theory course right from scratch, and it's just meant a bit of respite where I'm able to I'm going to try and get two lectures done pre-recorded so I'm kind of ahead of the game and um, yeah it's been a it's been an interesting sort of start to the term because I've just had this one day on a Monday for eight hours and you know it's that's very very tiring but also I think for the students sort of coming back face to face especially sort of starting at nine o'clock in the morning and there's a lot of students and we're in this big cavernous lecture theater so there's a lot of things that to contend with (laughs) um but it's been it's been okay and my philosophy on screen classes have been great really good so um i've been doing bergson and deleuze with them so anybody who knows that stuff knows how difficult that is and yeah minds were blown on on tuesday you know <laughs> i have almost have to relearn that stuff every 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 year just so i can teach it to a standard that makes some kind of sense you know absolutely um that's nice to hear you know because i think that with all the stresses of of the term in terms of going back you know and i sort of wrote about this in the newsletter i think there's been some real there's some really nice moments in the classroom which have been really rewarding um and I know we might get on the bonus to some of the less rewarding uh, moments, but I think that you know I've yeah. been really pleased that there's been there's been a real sort of yeah sort of positive connection made in certain classes, which is you know again after such a long time away has has been like oh actually this is this is why I got into this in the first place. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think yeah, those of you who who want to stick around for the bonus, we are going to go on a bit of well, I'm going to go on a major rant, but. It's not when you go on a major rant, you have to caveat that that you know there are positive aspects of the, you know of university life and teaching and teaching film particularly, you know in its idealized form. Yeah, I get to t- just talk about film all day long. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's nothing really to complain about. But yeah, I don't. We'll go on to it in in, in the bonus. But that that question about 
what students want and what they expect and what they do when they get to university, you know, whether it's on film or just kind of broadly, I think is always something that, that is on my mind. So we'll talk a, a little bit about that later on. But yeah, we've got a great interview from you to come. But um, maybe first of all, we could talk about you know, a couple of movies, things we've seen. Do you want to kick off? There's something that you wanted to talk about specifically? Yeah. So the release of Sweet Thing, which is Alexander Rockwell's new film. And yeah, it's being released by Eureka. I think they released it in a cinema and now it's getting a, a lovely Blu-ray release. And yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, kind of weird sort of timing. I heard earlier in the year, I heard... Um, Toby Jones on the film program talking about In the Soup. It was a film that he really loves, which was Alexander Rockwell's first film with Steve Buscemi and, and, and Seymour Cassell, which is just a really wonderful, right up my street, black and white, New York indie. Um, and yeah, and then I sort of re so I rewatched that after hearing that and I was like, oh, this is such a wonderful movie. Kind of whatever happened to whatever happened to Alexander Rockwell? And then I was like, oh, he's got a new film. And um, it's really wonderful. Yeah, it's. Again, right on my street, black and white, 16 mil, indie, um, set, I think, in sort of New England or sort of Massachusetts, maybe, certainly that sort of part of the world, and just follows two young kids uh, from a very poor background on a kind of odyssey across the summer, really. Will Patton plays the the dad, alcoholic, um, but not an abusive one. Um, well, you know, in, in the kind of the traditional screen sense, I guess. And then Karen Parsons, who played... Um, the Hillary on um, Fresh Prince of Bel Air plays the mother. She's brilliant, but it's just uh, and the, the 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 kids are played by members of the Rockwell family, so it's got a real kind of family vibe on the on the credits. Pretty much everybody, Sam and everyone, has pitched in money to make it. But it's a really beautiful film. You know, it kind of it doesn't fall into any of the the kind of the poverty porn traps. Even though it's kind of bleak at times, it's just yeah, really great performances. A really lovely movie, very pleasurable to look at, and yeah, great soundtrack. Just yeah, just kind of nestling away, you know, just a really nice find, I think. And I hope people do find it because I found it a really, really good movie. Again, kind of the, the indie movies that they say don't get made anymore, but he's still he's still making them and it's well worth checking out. What about you? Awesome. I'll definitely do that for sure. Yeah, well, I've gone on a kind of <laughs> dune bender, really, <laughs> in many ways. So, I mean, look. I wrote a little bit about this in the newsletter. I, I have a, a kind of a little bit of an obsession with the the Lynch version, which is rightly derided in many ways. But there's certain elements of that that kind of recuperate it for me. And I got the audio book, so there's been a, a kind of re-release or a re-publication, let's say, uh, a remarketing of the of the June book. Obviously, the Frank Herbert book. They've they've repackaged the audio book with the you know, the new, the Denny Villeneuve sort of star poster. So I downloaded that, and the audiobook is great. Really good. A selection of voices. All sorts, all sorts of people. It's nobody, I think they're all just kind of, I think a couple of them are actors, but there's no nobody whose name would, you know, just jump out at you. But it's brilliantly read, and it's got sound effects as well, so it's not just a straight audiobook. And all the, you know, the different voices and the transitions are really well done. So a lot of care has gone into it. And... I remember reading the book as a kid, or trying to, and struggling with it. But but this is just going in, you know, really easily, and I'm into the world. And I didn't quite realize just how how much the the movies have to cut out what's going on here, because there's a lot more kind of intrigue and politicking 
within the within the sort of houses as they they are, you know, because you've got in the movies it reduces them to like all the good guys are the good guys, all the bad guys are the bad guys, you know, as films tend to do, but it's much more intricate in the book. And you know, interestingly, I kind of liked Denis Villeneuve's Dune, but the the further I've got away from it, the more I think it's just it is kind of fitting a, a pretty traditional blockbuster mold in a way that that Lynch's didn't. You know, there's a sort of cinematic. It's interesting, there's a cinematic scope in a slightly different way to Lynch in terms of what he's trying to do that didn't quite succeed because of the production values and what have you. And, you know, it's kind of gone the other way with, with Villeneuve where the scope of the production values is massive. But when you actually look at it, the cinematic innovation is maybe not as as great. But I, I watched Jodorowsky's Dune for the first time, which is the Frank Pavich documentary about... Alejandro Jodorowsky's failed attempt to get Dune made in the 70s and it's it's really good I mean it's it's a straightforward documentary which is very much a lot of talking heads with Jodorowsky but he's so interesting to listen to and you know he's this classical I mean we'll maybe talk a little bit about the auteur theory in the in the bonus but he is this this, you know, this I am in control of this, it's my vision, it's my Dune. And it, this amazing sort of book that he's got, that he made, which is kind of like doorstep level with all of the storyboarding, all of the the artwork from Geiger and these other, you know, very famous, sort of very well known in that, in those circles, sort of French comic book uh, artists. Nicholas Winding Refn starts the whole thing off by saying, you know, I had I had um, dinner with Jodorowsky and he showed me the book and we, we literally spent four hours going through it and he explained it to me, explained the film to me. And he says, you know, it's the greatest film that never was made, in my view. You know, he just goes through the whole madness of it, trying to get Salvador Dali and Marlon Brando into the same movie and all of this kind of thing. Going to the studios with a plan, they're saying, well, you know, how long is this going to be? Well, I don't know. If it's going to be 12 hours, it's 12 hours. If it's 20 hours, it's going to be 20 hours. This is my vision. This is my dream and all this kind of thing. And, then, and what's really great at the end is when he goes to see, he realized that, that the rights were taken away from him and sold to David Lynch. And he was like, oh, my God, this is terrible, David, because I really respect David Lynch. He's an artist. He's a true cinematic artist. And... They made me go and watch the movie, you know, and I go and watch the movie. And as I'm watching it, I'm get, I'm going from like being hunched over and depressed to like coming up. I'm coming up. I'm coming up because it's terrible. <laughs> and I realize it's terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I had this human reaction that this great artist couldn't put June on the screen. Yeah. And, and, you know, my June, even though it was unmade, was still the June. And um, yeah, it's just wonderful. And I really, the guys, uh, the director, Frank Pavich, is on, on Twitter. So I'm going to try and get him on because I'd like to do an episode that, that deals with Dune, but not directly, as it were. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. think talking to him would be a great way of doing that. Great. Yeah, that's that's definitely on my watch list. So I shall, I shall check that out. And hopefully, yeah, we can get that chat going. Yeah, and it just just very quick, sorry, very quickly to finish. The, the end of the movie, it just shows all of the films that basically have been influenced by this book that he had because apparently Jodorowsky sent this book out to all the studios and then suddenly all these ideas started coming out in other movies like Star Wars and and Blade Runner and all this kind of stuff so it's it's kind of like saying that they took all the seeds of these ideas ditched Jodorowsky and then used them in all these other movies so it's kind of like the the anti-Star Wars in a way you know what I mean it wasn't made but it is the the most influential science fiction kind of non-movie, as it were. Okay. Sorry, anyway. Yeah, no, that's really um, interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. 
I definitely will check that out. So um, let's get into the main part of the episode. So this is a really, really great interview. I really enjoyed listening to it. So why don't you set it up for us? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was a it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was a real pleasure to talk to Dr. Alison Pierce, who is Associate Professor of Film at Leeds and is a kind of leading light uh, for horror scholarship. Um, she's yeah, a kind of brilliant academic, the editor of a, of a collection called Women Make Horror, uh, which is a fabulous edited collection uh, about female filmmakers in horror. And she's got a great newsletter called The Losers Club, which I read avidly and think is is brilliant. And uh, yeah, she shared with us um, her, her currently doing festivals video essay and uh, three ways to to dine well about food and horror. And yeah, just I just really wanted to talk to her because I just think she's just a really exciting uh, scholar and and critic in the in the in, in film really. Um, and as not being someone who's as I sort of mentioned in the interview, I, I watch a lot of horror, but I certainly don't consider myself a horror scholar or aficionado. It was really interesting to talk to her about about horror as a kind of research area. So, yeah, had a really nice time uh, talking to her, and I hope that our listeners enjoy it as well. I quit med school today. That shouldn't come as a surprise to you. I'm changing specialties, Dr. Grant. Hello, Alison. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, and thank you for having me on, Neil. I'm um, both excited and intrigued to see what you've got in store for me. <laughs> ah, hopefully, um, hopefully rewarding um, mm-hmm. and uh, and interesting, um, which is a word I use a lot. But um, yeah, it's um, it's really exciting to talk to you um, for a number of reasons, which hopefully we'll get to across the conversation. Um, I wanted to start by talking about a film, if that's all right. Um, go um, on then. I hope I've seen it. <laughs> You have seen it, so okay. when I well, I assume you have because you you mentioned about it. So I hope you I hope you're honest when you said that you'd seen it. Um, so yeah, I, you know, it's in your video essay, which we'll get to. You sort of say, mm. you know, hopefully, you got some in your director statement. Like, hopefully, here's some viewing recs. And one of the things yeah. I love about about academic writing and just writing in general and podcasting is kind of getting recs. And one rec that had been on my list for a while was American Mary. Oh yes, which. I heard on another podcast called the Projections mm. Podcast, and then I read your piece in your edited collection, yeah. Women Make Horror, and you sort of mention it as one of those films early on in, yeah, uh, in sort of that, that 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 thinking around women making horror, yeah. you know, in, in terms of your academic journey. And so I watched it on Monday, mm. um, and I loved it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant, yeah, um, and it was such a surprise, you know, because yeah. it's it's labelled for good reason as a kind of extreme horror mm. um but i thought well wow, this is really funny um <laughs> like it's really funny that the lead actress is just so deadpan and, and yeah. funny and i thought it was a lovely love story as well between her and the the kind of equally dysfunctional um uh, club owner that yeah. she you know yeah. um which i thought was really sweet and then i thought actually this is one of the best films i've seen about education and about who gets to be mm. educated and who gets to study and how class and identity plays such a key role in in the education system in such a direct way um so yeah so i just i, I really wanted to say thank you for kind of oh, nudging me to see it um, that's okay <laughs> and uh yeah what, how did how did you sort of find it watching it first of all because it's you know, it was how formative a film was it in terms of that period 
It's really, it's really important in terms of that period. So, like the kind of the twenty tens to the twenty twenties is when um, kind of women film directors in horror start to really come into some prominence. And the Soska sisters, um, Jen and Sylvia Soska, who directed American Mary, um, are absolutely in- instrumental in that kind of contemporary wave of um, women horror filmmakers. Um, but I approached. American Mary with some caution in that um, the Soska sisters are brilliant but there are there are many different kinds of horror films and they lean more towards the more extreme end and they're more interested in body horror and all these things that are entirely wonderful for some people um, but I lean more towards like ghosts <laughs> and like supernatural and like is there someone there are there not is she possessed or is she mental that's kind of more my sort of thing or like werewolves I'm quite into but um the kind of the more brutal and extreme end of horror cinema which is what I'd always felt um the Soska sisters in particular really embraced um, was not something that I'm massively into really. Um, mm. But I love American Mary in particular um, just because I love Catherine Isabel, who's the lead actor. Um, you know, she was in Ginger Snaps. Um, she's just wonderful. Yeah. So, like, she can be in anything and I will watch it. So, right. like, American Mary is really um, important as the Soska sisters are in terms of the history of kind of contemporary filmmakers. They're not hugely formative on kind of my own practice and my own interest but that's only because I'm a complete softy <laughs> I don't like anything too horrible so yeah. they're not near the top of my list but only from taste yeah like from my own taste my own subjective position not through any kind of judgment call on them <laughs> yeah no that's fair enough but I, I could see how you know in the the your introduction and your sort of overview for the for the book the yeah the, the, the the questions that arise from watching it in terms of like a female audience or yeah. a female what female filmmakers will make given yes. the chance kind of thing I think is really interesting because yeah. yeah there's it really it both kind of meets expectations but also kind of subtly challenges them so I think we'll come back to some of that stuff in a yeah, bit definitely. so you sort of mentioned there about your taste um yeah but I wanted to, to just ask you broadly about sort of horror research and your kind mm. of experiences of it as, as an academic you know it's always seemed to be um kind of like its place in mainstream or, or you know sort of film culture is that yeah. it has a very avid and a very kind of learned group of people writing about it but yeah within the academy it's not necessarily taken seriously so um i wondered about your kind of experiences and and whether some of your the way you conduct your research and the way you sort of are a a sort of voice in the horror community is geared towards kind of making it something that a, a university would recognize as valuable and meaningful in the way it yeah. kind of reaches outside of the walls yeah totally oh there's about 75 questions in there sorry I yeah. know it's all right I'm just wondering where to start um what I can say is like I did my PhD on horror cinema I did it on 1930s horror and that was like 2003 to 2006 and like the general response that you have both from other academics and from like normal people is when you say you're doing your PhD in horror everyone thinks you're strange or weird um, or they expect me to be like a goth 
um, which I'm not like obviously like people might be listening to this but I'm sat here wearing a bright pink cardigan um, you know like so there's there's expectations that you're someone who kind of was curled up in a ball all the way through their teenage years and not interacting with anybody, um, which which isn't necessarily true. So there's lots of like general misconceptions about people who like horror, which um, I've learned to just roll with because it's quite funny. Um, but then when it came to actually like becoming a scholar like if you think your PhD is like your apprenticeship isn't it so like during my kind of apprentice period I think I was quite lucky in that I was in the UK which has always had a really strong kind of um, tradition of researching horror so um, like the 1990s is when horror really kicks off in academia and by the 2000s when I was studying it um, some of the key people in the field were people like Peter Hutchins and Mike Yankovic and they were already in the UK, Julian Petley, they were already in the UK doing their thing, being professors. So the sense of um, legitimation of it as an actual subject within academia, I've never particularly had a problem with. I also don't necessarily really care what people think. Um, but beyond that, what I did realise when I was a student was just how blokey it was in the 2000s I remember going to the first Cine Excess and frequently feeling like I was like literally the only woman in the room like literally the only woman um, and even when me and my friend Beth went down like a year or two later we went down and we put like posh frocks on and put lipstick on and we were like what are we doing this is crazy like it's just filled with boys in black t-shirts and you know like I have my Joy Division t-shirt on you know I love a black t-shirt but it was literally um, it's what Ian Robert Smith, the scholar at King's, has called like the black t-shirt gang, you know, of cult and horror scholars is a very particular kind of white male in a black t-shirt doing his thing. So I was often felt kind of quite, hmm, don't know, don't know where I fit into that really. I don't think I really do. Um, so what I have liked to do, like bringing on to the kind of final point that you were saying about the way I do my research is that I really want to make it um, feel like accessible and not just do like PhD students who might feel they have to read my books are doing the PhD on horror but people who are just dead interested in horror and want to know more and not necessarily like factoids but you know like ways of thinking about horror um, I did a um, Twitch live stream for Women's um, History Month last year and I was on with this um, amazing woman called Sampira who said, who's done Black Sands, which is a fantastic kind of black horror exhibition in Birmingham. And she said, what I loved about reading horror scholarship was the sense that all the things that I'd been thinking about how I felt and what I thought about horror films was a sense that I wasn't then like being stupid and I wasn't alone and there were all these scholars like who'd had all these thoughts about it that chimed with what you thought so for me it's about it's about opening it up um I'm really not into gatekeeping you know I, I want I want horror to be for everyone and I've converted so many of my friends who claim not to like horror films I've converted so many it's a it's a personal pleasure of mine <laughs> beautiful um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, lots to kind of to spin out from there. That when you sort of say you, you don't really care what people think, I think that's, <laughs> that's great, um, much needed. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, but but there's, I think that that 
how to sort of say it because I think that in the in the past a lot of you know particular types of scholars didn't care what people thought but they also weren't yeah. interested in making it accessible they also weren't yeah. interested in in the conversation and yeah. what I loved well I love about your your work is the kind of the conversational aspect of it but yeah you know just reading that the sort of your your introduction to the the women make horror book it's it was so refreshing to see someone acknowledge learning you know yeah because we so rarely we so rarely sort of get to see academics learning or yeah to hear them talk about how they've learned you know rather than mm. like oh I learned about horror and then I like horror but you were talking about how that's not a static position and how exactly. that, that had evolved which is really lovely and that's really important to me um like just as a scholar like I'm I'm obsessed with learning I love learning new things like my brain's like firing all the time about the latest thing that I want to know and understand like I want to pull apart everything understand how it works like intellectually and I've never understood academics who are kind of like get to the end of their 20s find their method and they're like this is my method and I apply this method to this thing and then they just do that for like the next 40 years I'm like how are you not going insane with boredom and um, to me, I, I just love like work evolving and I love thinking about it. And um, it's something that now, now I'm an associate professor and like relatively stable in my career. I feel that I've kind of got space to just open up and be a bit more reflexive in my writing and um, talk a bit more about journeys. And it's part of telling a story, which hopefully is interesting, but also it, it shows, you know, that academics aren't infallible that we're all learning all the yeah. time and um I do get pushback from having a more personal narrative in some of my work um it doesn't always go down well some people really hate it they mm. really hate it but I given with given women make horror was edited by me I can kind of do what I want <laughs> yeah yeah and that's the thing it's like can take control of yeah taking control of that what again like one of the things when I sort of saw the book and sort of saw that you know that you started getting sort of following your 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 interests and, and sort of reading the newsletter and mm. sort of, and then I saw the book and I was like oh this is interesting that it's an edited collection yeah because it feels like it could be a monograph you know it's your research yeah. area you're very you're very clear in the introduction about how about your like you say your personal journey with it yeah and then it's like why why an edited collection but then again reading it I'm like oh because it's about plurality of voices because yes. you're talking about deconstructing <laughs> the idea of one person in charge of a narrative and yeah even in a monograph when you're trying to decolonize something yeah. if it's just one person it's hard to get a sense of how expansive that could be so was, I was like oh I, this makes sense now oh yeah thank you I'm glad you got that it, that was really important to me like to say there's not like one way to do it so like when I was studying horror as a PhD student like psychoanalytic approaches to horror film was still like basically the default way you did things and it took me quite a long time to discover that there were all these different methods and all these different ways of approaching horror that were just as fun if not more interesting and um, for the book I really wanted to push at having like different voices um, from different perspectives from like contributors from all over the place um, using different methods and analysing different things so when I put out the call for papers I had an awful lot of them that wanted to do kind of straight textual analysis and that be it and textual analysis is fine but I was like I'm trying to like I'm trying to 
mess up a bit what we think of when we analyse film and you know so when Sonia Looper pitched um, a whole one on film festivals and how filmmakers go from fans to filmmakers through film festivals it's like yes this is fascinating and we've not really seen anything like this so it's having all those diff- I kind of think when we make horror as a book I'd like it to be more thought of, of ways of doing it you know, because it can't be the canonical book on women filmmakers and horror because you can't do that in one book. Like, you yeah. just can't. You can do it in, like, ten books. Then you probably get the definitive guide. Um, but you can't do it in one. So what I really wanted to do was just, like, break up and the field and break up and what you're studying. If you say you're interested in women and horror, like, what might that look like? What's the different ways you could do it? And that's what I was most interested in. Yeah, it's it's a book that is it's a very cinematologist book, um, <laughs> and what I mean by that is that the, th- the things that we talk a lot about are the idea of the auteur and mm-hmm. kind of decentering the auteur, you know, so that you know, not there's not one overriding singular kind of vision or force at the, at the center of the film, yeah, but also that when you if you get rid of the auteur theory then like you say the 2010s with all these amazing female filmmakers not just making one film yeah or or working in an area like exploitation mm. you know like someone like you know uh stephanie rothman or something like mm. that you then they don't get to be auteurs or they don't get to be considered in terms of a career um so trying to hold those two positions so not getting rid of the auteur but decentering it which i think is yeah really fascinating about your work and how and the lengths you go to 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 expand what filmmaking is which from someone like me who's a practitioner and a screenwriter and a producer but not a director yeah i'm very much for that idea um oh good yeah yeah. it's not just me then like i am (laughs) like it's like directors are great and obviously they're important but as i'm someone who writes scripts like i do like to think about the screenwriters given they created the entire world that the film is being made from and kind of the same with editors you know that they rewrite like the entire story in editing don't they and then producers don't get their dues i talked about this in women make horror i was really disappointed that i didn't get any chapters on producing which to be fair in academia there's like literally one or two books Mm. and i don't think people know how to go about examining film producers which is fair enough but like all of these roles are important and as part of my like personal pet project of highlighting all the women who've ever worked on horror films ever like you're much more likely to find a woman working as a producer or as a screenwriter or as an editor you know you're far more likely to find them doing those roles so to me that's where I want to go yeah like and also find you have the to, women yeah, yeah exactly I, but and also something else we've talked about is you have to then expand the idea of what a film is so it's not a 90 minute yeah. cinema release narrative because that privileges a very narrow sort of demographic of who's allowed to make those films historically so you have yes. to include shorts yeah you have to include documentaries uh increasingly essay films like you're you know like you yeah. have to do this because otherwise what you're saying is that you know you're, it's about access and historically yeah. access has been limited And that's why it was really important to me to have a chapter on experimental film and video art in there. Because again, that idea that when you study film, like historically, not just horror, but you know, film studies generally is like the feature film. And that is like, 
in essence a very kind of exclusionary process so being able to have a whole chapter on experimental cinema and kind of fine artists who've worked in video was like I was so delighted when I got that pitch it's like yes this this is going in the book this is 100% going in the book because it's part of the project of kind of trying to get you to see the wide array of things that you can look at when you study horror like video art experimental short film this this is where we need to be looking yeah and i think it makes it really accessible in a way because it's it's kind of expanding yeah like the idea of what what horror is what horror cinema is you know in a really exciting way and it's you know you you mentioned in that it's not about changing the canon yeah. But it's you know, but it's about changing the narrative. There is a kind of correcting yeah. a narrative, which I think is, and I'm really interested in that as well. Like what, like what, how else can I think about film, you know? And and your yeah. book is a really good guide of how to how to possibly do that. Well, that's it's what I'm trying to do, and I think it's kind of reflective again of like where I am in my career. In that I'm, you know, I first started lecturing kind of 17 years ago, so I've kind of, you know, I've done a a lot of thinking about kind of traditional film studies and I feel pretty confident both in my knowledge of how you do film studies and what it looks like, but because I've gathered all that knowledge, I'm kind of like, well, what's next? What can we do next? What are the different ways we can think about it? I'm, I'm kind of a bit obsessed with method is kind of a thing, like trying to think of lots of different ways to do things. And are there new ways we can do it? Can we borrow from other disciplines? Are there, are there, is there stuff in feminist social sciences that we can make? Is there stuff in practice research that we can make? How can we play with this and do something new and interesting? And that's what I'm, I'm always thinking about, really. Yeah. And what was what's nice about it is that you know you almost seem to have this kind of utopian idea of what academic writing can be you know <laughs> um, because so much of what you're doing is kind of throwing up problems and throwing up very complex yeah. issues but that in in the main could be reduced to kind of sound bites but that's what academic writing should be surely a place where you can actually have the space to explore these complexities over a long period of time and lots of different forms I was literally just writing about this yesterday. <laughs> so, like the traditional, the traditional thing with academic books is um, you state your thesis at the beginning of the book. This is the thing that I think, and then through a series of increasingly like laborious and um, tiring case studies, you make the same point over and over and over again until you get to the end of your book and you go, "This is what I set out to do." this is what I did and this is what I found. And it's what you'd said in the intro and it's called, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the scholar I was looking at, but in a completely different field, it's a woman, I think it's Sarah Shulman, who's writing a kind of academic memoir about um, New York during the AIDS crisis. So it's something completely different, but she talks about that as the one long, slow idea book and how she never wants to write the one long, slow idea book. And I was like, yes, I don't want to write that book either. I want to write the book that like, this is the next book I'm thinking about. I felt I had to make women make horror a bit more controlled, but the next book I'm doing is kind of, it's asking loads of questions and it isn't, this is my thing and now I'm going to prove it. It's saying, but what about this? But if we think about this, what about this? And I'm asking way more questions than I could answer. And that will probably like, annoy some people but it's the kind of 
I'm very enthusiastic about like possibilities you know like you were saying the utopian aspect but I'm really I'm fascinated by the possibilities of writing and thinking about film and how that raises questions and like you don't always have to pose the question at the beginning and then answer it over eight chapters and then say it again you can just keep building on it and building on it to to I, I kind of want to write in dialogue like with the reader the whole time and it's a backwards and forwards kind of that's that's my way really yeah and i think that way is 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 very clear across the variety of things that you do you know i think if someone was to sort of take the book it might feel like oh this is like the start of something but incomplete work which obviously by design it's incomplete that's not a criticism it's a that's kind of that but but to look at your um the the documentary the video essay yeah work and the newsletter work it's clearly yeah that it's part of a a much broader ongoing conversation that you're having with yourself and yes a variety of audiences which is really exciting I think oh thank you I'd not really thought about um how I'm kind of doing that across all the different mediums it's usually just like oh one day I need to write my newsletter one day I'm working on a video essay and then one day I'm working on the book but I think it's it's just as asking questions in different mediums produces different answers mm, yeah I think which I find really interesting yeah. like um I've just written the script for the next video essay which is called knit one stab two and it's all about knitting in horror films um but while that's the the topic, what I'm actually interested in is like representations of aging and gender, and I'm using knitting to explore that. Um, but I never would have written that as a script for my second one if I'd not had such like a rapturous response in my newsletter. <laughs> like I was like, wow, I got so many responses when I talked about being interested in knitting, and it only because I like knitting and I like horror films, so I thought I'd do them, and I got so much response. It's like. I thought that was super niche. Yeah. Like, I thought my newsletter was niche. Like my husband's always telling me my newsletter's niche, but I was like, that is super niche. But no, who yeah. knew? Who the knew? Niche of the and, niche. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who knew that there was so much appetite for it? But it's it's through this idea of kind of writing and thinking. I'm literally thinking in real time when I write like, the newsletter. I don't redraft it. I mean, I go through it quick for typos, but I literally write it and send it and that kind of thinking in real time is starting to have some really interesting results I think that I'd not anticipated yeah. oh a couple of things there I wanted to, firstly that the, the real time thing I think is really interesting because you do get a sense when you're reading it that you're yeah someone is pro is, is it, you you have priv- you're privy to someone's process you yeah. know which is is so again just it, it's lovely when you read someone's academic work um, mm. or see someone's academic work but then you get this you get another side which is a sort of access to the process um mm. so yeah i just sort of, i was going to sort of ask that in a bit but i'll ask it now in terms of the newsletter um mm. you know how did that how did that kind of come about um was yeah. it because you felt like that there was a conversation to be had in terms of people that you know you sort of you knew would be interested or you it was mm. literally like i need a space to do this thing and hopefully someone will sort of pick up on it yeah I've not I can't even remember why I really decided I'd do it about a year ago no no okay so like September 2020 I was launching Women Make Horror and my friend who runs her entire design business off Instagram said like 
you have to get on board with social media and you have to get on board because I'm like I'm really not into social media or online I'm really not and she's like you have to get on board with this Ali so in the lead up to Women Make Horror coming out I posted an image and some text for every day relating to the chapter so I think there's 17 chapters so for 17 days before it launched I posted something about each chapter and that seemed to go down really well and so I started to realize oh yeah it does turn out that like social media is a really useful tool for discussion even if you think it's like the devil's work and then from doing a bit more of that I became aware of another of my friends who runs their entire business online was like there is no place that people can go and see all your work so you're posting this stuff on Instagram and then where do people go and it's like but there's my academic page at the University of Leeds what do you mean and they're like no girl that is not that is not what I mean <laughs> so I thought right okay I probably need a website so that that was kind of October so by December I got a website put together and I started to occasionally write blogs for it just about what I was watching I wrote quite a lot about Christmas horror films because it was December but I was think I had no sense really of um, engagement or interaction, and it turns out writing kind of blog entries takes a long time, <laughs> and no one was giving me any money for it either. <laughs> I was like, mm, don't know, I don't think this is the way forward. Um, but so I kind of stopped the blogs, but I still wanted somewhere to write. And again, that sense of writing more informally, I don't mean like journal articles or anything like that, something writing informally about what I've been watching, what my process is, blah, blah, blah. Stuff that I I find interesting. Um, so I was hoping someone else might, I don't mean I'm interesting. I mean that I, I'm a really into newsletters. I love newsletters and I subscribe to so many newsletters. And um, the, the ones I really like are the kind of informal ones where you get a real sense of voice of the person which I'm I'm really obsessed with voice um so I think I decided to start one I think it was December around the same time as launching the um website and I modeled it at first on the Austin Cleon one I don't know if you know Austin Cleon he's like massive and he does creativity stuff like he he writes the kind of books that are in urban outfitters that are called like keep going and how to be creative yeah. but he's got a, he's got this nifty newsletter and he sends it out every week and it's 10 things he's found interesting and they're all links back to his website so you know like he's creating the newsletter as a way of sending you back to the website to buy the books you know it's a very efficient business model and I thought oh maybe this is a good efficient business model and maybe if I do this and people will go on my website and buy Women Make Horror so I started doing it as just kind of 10 things that I'd seen but it became apparent by like the second or third one that that wasn't working for me. Like I'm not a kind of, here are 10 things, link off you go. I'm much more kind of conversational. So just over the process of doing the newsletter, I started to just like, just make it a bit more chatty. <laughs> that seems to work. And it's kind of, um, it's crept up in terms of subscribers. It keeps going. And every week, like when I send it out, I get loads of people right back, like, people in Australia and Canada and in Italy and they all write and they all tell me what they're doing and and it's just dead interesting so but it's taken it's taken a bit of time to work out how to do it and what I want to put in and yeah. I still don't know if half of it is interesting like so all my friends and family who subscribe they only subscribe to see if I mention them that week <laughs> yeah right 
So yeah. they all subscribe, yeah. and they're like, Ali, your newsletter is way too long. It's way too long. So I sent out a message, I think, a few months ago on the newsletter going, is this way too long? <laughs> and I think all the people who actually like horror were like, no, no, it's fine. It was just my family that were like, I'm having to do control F to look for my name. Hey, Alison, <laughs> can you? <laughs> oh, yes. I know that well. Do you talk about me? Oh, I'm not going to. I might. You yeah. Know, not yeah, like it. my husband's literally just scrolling through it looking for the word Paul to see what I've said about him. He's not reading any of it at all. <laughs> but like, he's clear actual people who like horror films and aren't just reading it because they live in the same house as me. They yeah. seem to quite like it, I think. Great. So. <laughs> yeah, I think it's brilliant. It's, and I'm, I'm a bit of a newsletter junkie as well. Um, yeah. So it's definitely it's definitely one of my favourites. I'm not just saying that. Oh, um, that's nice. Because I, I, I love the tone and the voice. And, yeah. And, and, and because I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll, I watch a lot of films, so I watch a lot of horror films, but... I'm not quote unquote interested in horror other than mm. just like as a as this kind of film fan. So it's such a yeah, it's such a lovely kind of hit of horror. Um mm. which I think is really but I think what's 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 clear about it from sort of your commentary within it is that it's doing that thing which is again one of the sort of potential one of the great potentialities of the internet is to to bring people to something who previously mm. would have not had a space or you know so that you know when you're sort of saying who knew there was kind of knitting horror fans <laughs> yeah. you know well yeah but there are you know and that the internet sort of man is is sometimes a, a good place yes. where people can they, they 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 can find each other you know and i know that for our for our podcast we've we've done stuff because we're interested in it we once did a an episode on essay films yes the video essay prize um and we were like well we'll do this because we like it yeah but no one's going to listen to this episode but of course they did because there's no other podcast talking about or at the time there wasn't talking about video essays so yeah you realize oh actually yeah that there's a value in in kind of sharing my interest in the right way not with a hope of but but so that it's almost like a beacon that people yeah. then respond to yeah that's lovely that's a lovely way of thinking about it um I, and I totally get that as well and again it's that sense of being like far enough on in my career to think this is just me and this is, I'll put it out there <laughs> there's not really any pretense or posturing and hopefully someone else likes it yeah. and this is the thing that I was into and hopefully someone else likes it and if you don't like it mate I'm um, hopefully you'll still read the next one in case there's something that you like there yeah you know and it's just to spend time with someone isn't it you know it's, it's such yeah. a nice way of spending time with someone uh, that that sense of confidence I think is interesting because mm. I, I I was made associate professor earlier this year as well congratulations thank you very much but and I certainly felt the same kind of like oh yeah. actually it, it felt like a milestone for my career and gave me a bit of confidence that I'd been lacking before mm. and it wasn't it was nothing other than you know actually I feel like the the way I've approached my career and the decisions I've made to do things that I like I've yeah. actually through the process of applying I've managed to make it seem like it's of value <laughs> it's like, I know exactly what you mean <laughs> it's like when you're doing the application form and you're like how can I retrofit a narrative here about the progression from this book to the next one like I meant to do it <laughs> yeah I spent a lot of time making podcasts how do I make it seem like it was not just you know yeah. um, and that and it seemed to work so I was like, okay well that that gives me a sense of of kind of confidence that there's yeah that there's there's value to what i what i'm doing um yeah in a way that wasn't wasn't really there before mm. i feel the same i mean 
again people who know me well would say you wouldn't care anyway but it, there's there's something um I feel very you know touch wood I feel very secure in my employment I work in an amazing um school a school of media and communication at Leeds um I get left alone to just do basically what I want and there's the expectation I will deliver at a high level but there's no one over my shoulder like they're not they're really into research um I'm at this kind of career stage now so it's 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 a privilege to work at this level and to get to this level and you know I intend to like make the most of it while I can I think and then hopefully you know like do that thing of when you're working you're like opening up and making the field more accessible so more junior people can go what she's doing is not that clever I could do that and then they can come through and kind of um, claw at my soft flesh (laughs) (laughs) oh yes opening opening yourself up for sacrifice is yeah uh, yeah exactly part of the job (laughs) yeah Uh, all part of the job yeah no I think I think that's 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 really interesting um and I think yeah when I was sort of, yeah, sort of looking across, I was like, of, of, of course, of, you know, well, not of course, but you hope that that's, that's the reality of your experience because the newsletter, the essays, the yeah. book, your, your general work as a kind of you know, horror scholar in the, in the wild, you know, yes. is, is everything <laughs> that, that, that universities are saying that they, they want their staff yeah. to be doing in terms of research and knowledge exchange and, impact yeah. and stuff like that so it's actually really lovely to hear that you have that support within because it's not always the case because it's, it's like the it's narrative not. is one thing but the reality is something else so yeah completely and I mean Leeds is the first place that I've really wor- worked where I feel like I've really had that intellectual freedom and I've worked at quite a few places <laughs> but I feel, <laughs> Leeds is Leeds is excellent um for prioritizing research and respecting research yeah as well and again that kind that is not always being um the ideology yeah. <laughs> i wonder how or if your research informs your teaching because i noticed that you teach screenwriting which i teach yeah. as well um and i wondered where the where in your teaching the horror comes in is it a big part or, or is it something you sort of leave at the door because it's a chance to not 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 do that and to just kind of to have a different focus well, it's a really interesting question because it's probably the one aspect of um, my job in my current role that I would want to tweak. So um, I've say I've worked have a few. I'm going to sound like everywhere else I've worked now is like dissing because I said this has had the most intellectual freedom. So I'll be really careful. Um, but I did five wonderful years at Northumbria, and it was my first full time lectureship, first full time permanent lectureship, which again is not the role that you get straight out of a PhD. You have to go do your time in the trenches, do your fractional post, do your fixed term post, and then eventually you get the permanent full-time post if you're very lucky. Um, So when I was at Northumbria, um, I was working under the auspices of Peter Hutchins, who wrote British horror cinema, like Hammer and Beyond, the British horror film, and is like one of the founding fathers of horror cinema scholarship. And Peter was brilliant for kind of mentoring me and bringing me on and letting me develop modules specifically around horror films. So um, when I was at Northumbria, I had a module called The Horror Film, which was an undergraduate one. 
which it dis- I discovered at that point that didn't actually know much about horror because I'd done my PhD on 1930s horror and I kind of knew a lot about the 1930s and not a lot about the 1960s it turned out <laughs> so that was a really good learning curve um so I did that and then I developed a master's level module at Northumbria called Global Horror Cinema and that was the time in the 2000s when um, we were getting a massive influx of like Japanese and Korean and Thai horror cinema coming through um, UK distribution labels and I was really interested in that. So I developed a module on global horror cinema um, looking at uh, looking at horror through different national cinemas essentially and I ended up doing a book on Korean horror cinema because I'm still obsessed with Korean horror um, but I did all that and then so most places I've worked while I was being a traditional film and tv studies academic um, I ran my own kind of horror modules which I loved doing it was such fun but then um, in 2015 I decided I'd had enough of just doing analysis and theory and I taught myself script editing and screenwriting and started doing that and then I got a lectureship at York um, teaching playwriting and screenwriting and what I discovered I absolutely love teaching creative practice and I love workshop teaching and I hardly do any lecturing like straight lecturing now it's nearly always workshops that I do and I absolutely love teaching screenwriting, but there aren't many opportunities to um, shoehorn in the history of global horror cinema <laughs> into how to write your first short film script, I've discovered. So I always have like a week on genre and the chosen genre is always horror. Yeah. <laughs> so we always have to watch horror. And then when I've come to Leeds, it's been a bit more of a mix. So I predominantly still teach creative practice. Um, it's filmmaking and kind of photography teaching I'm doing now. Um, but I occasionally do come in and do some lectures. And when I do do the lectures, um, there will be a week on horror. There will also always be a week on Hong Kong action cinema, which I also love. <laughs> Um, but the, yeah, that's the only thing that I'm not doing. And there aren't many people who teach screenwriting within the school that I work in. So there's not a lot of wiggle room at the moment um, for me to offer a specialist module on horror cinema because there won't be anyone to teach the kind of intermediate and advanced level screenwriting options. So that's the only thing that I would really like to do a bit more of. I'll just have a module on like women's film history and then make it like a three hour workshoppy based thing where you think stuff through and interact and the students bring things in like that there'll be stuff that students look at that I will have never heard of yeah and I would love to get a bit more into that so that's the only that's the only thing I would like to get back to that I'm not doing at the moment cool very curious yeah someone who teaches screenwriting was always curious to see how people do it it's quite similar to to my approach um yeah and on 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 the global horror note what probably my favorite horror film I think is or at least top three would be the orphanage oh yes which I imagine of course. Would be more in line with your kind of supernatural yeah, that's my kind of horror <laughs> where like the scariest thing is a boy with a bag on his head yeah like that's my <laughs> absolutely and a game of um knock knock thing yeah um, yeah yeah that film utterly traumatized me uh when yeah, i watched it i good. love it it's good, great good. yeah it's great it's fantastic um See, I guess we'll sort of mention there about your a bit of your practice. I mean, we could do another mm. another podcast on all of the other stuff you do that's not horror <laughs> related in terms <laughs> of playwriting and uh, and kind of yeah. writing more broadly, which is which is great. But yeah, um, you yeah, you, you sent me a link to see your first kind of short documentary video essay yeah. that's kind of doing the rounds. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought it was 
thought it was fantastic um oh, thank and, you. and again a kind of both a just this really interesting thing i think which is like it's clearly about women in horror and and kind of the maternal and those almost like you know accessing the traditional ideas around the the women's role in uh in 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 cinema more Mm. broadly but certainly within horror but but almost at the same time as saying well the history of horror is the history of women's horror you know yes. like because it's not and it, not just as a subject but just as a yeah as a fact as a fact yeah. <laughs> you know um and it does it in 20 minutes <laughs> which i think yeah. is brilliant um so yeah kind of like and was was that always something that you were kind of looking to do as as the next phase of from the book mm. in terms of extending your work in this regard um i love essay films um i've i've loved them for a really long time um, I used to teach documentary at Northumbria and um, I absolutely love teaching my documentary module and um, I particularly love essay films like I love um, Los Angeles Plays Itself, um, I love Beyond Clueless, I think Beyond Clueless is probably my favourite um, but I also like films that mess up um, documentary forms so stuff like The Arbor I've written on, I'm obsessed with The Arbor, um, Dreams of a Life I absolutely love as well. And then films that, um, I can't remember the name of the film now. No, I have to come back to it. There's some others, there's some black and white weird like photography and archive film stuff from the 2000s that I can't remember. But I also, I really like stuff that plays with form and I really like stuff that manipulates story. Um, So I've always really enjoyed essay films. And then I was always really, envious of academics that I saw making essay films I always was like I was like oh I want to do that so much I really want to do that but um I'm not like a tech person I don't really like tech um I don't even like like I do a lot of my initial work and my thinking I do it longhand like you won't be able to see here if you're listening but I've got like a yellow pad and paper I'm very much a pen and paper person and the idea of me actually making a film, even if I didn't have to shoot anything, even if it was composed of extracts from other films, I thought I don't even know how to get the film off a of Blu-ray. Like I literally have not got a concept of how to do this. So I always didn't because I thought I just, I don't even know where to begin. I find the whole thing overwhelming. Mm. And then um, last year, um, Kate Egan, who's an excellent scholar in horror studies, who now works at Northumbria actually, um, she asked me to be on a panel for BAFTS, the British Association of Film, TV and Screen Studies, about horror. And it was the first year BAFTS was going to try out running online because of um, the pandemic. And they'd mentioned video essays as an option. And the idea was everyone was going to record in advance and circulate it. And then the actual conference would be chatting about your thing afterwards. So, well, that sounds quite good. And so I just said to Kate, oh, I'll do a video essay. And this was in like December. And she said, oh, that sounds great. And so then I watched um, Women Make Film, the Mark Cousins documentary, which I thought was amazing. And then the actual chapter on horror cinema I was incredibly frustrated by. Like it didn't feel to me 
as if he captured what I understand horror cinema to be. So Women Make Film is amazing and the work it does for women filmmakers and directors and that kind of um, model of bringing to light filmmakers that you might not have heard of from like non-anglophone traditions as well. I loved it, but I was really cross about the way he did horror. Like I was not into it, it made me really cross. So I thought I will, I will do a video essay like repost to this and then um the panel got accepted and i was like right i better work out how to do this and then it was happening i think in march or april of this year and so about february i thought i better teach myself adobe premiere pro and then i started learning adobe premiere pro and i was like shit (laughs) (laughs) oh shit i can't i don't think i can learn this fast enough um to do a good job um, so as it happens, very luckily, um, my brother does know how to edit film and has a master's degree in post-production. Lovely. So my brother had been asking me for like a month, Al, have you started that yet? And I'm like, no, nah, it'll be fine. And I was like, it's not fine, Chris, can you help me? <laughs> um, so I, Chris, my brother agreed to edit it for me. Um, which helped a lot and then um, my husband makes music as well Um, so my husband agreed to score it and he'd never scored it I'd never worked with my brother Um, he my brother had never seen an essay film I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know what a script looked like and then somehow I was kind of writing it and sending him the clips at the same time as my brother was cutting it and my husband was buying these synths so that he could make the music (laughs) and we kind of did all of it at once which was scary and um stressful and i got like a 16 minute cut put together for baths and um i got some really good feedback people were dead nice but i found the whole process dead interesting and i was also extremely dissatisfied with what i presented i was like that's this is not good enough and this is not doing what I wanted so I rewrote it which you know made my husband and brother very unhappy <laughs> <laughs> and then over the next three months um like we recut it and um I just I absolutely loved it mm. and I loved the way that um you can take your ideas and present them in an audio visual form that's like a million times more accessible and engaging than just the written word like it it blew my mind like how exciting it was to do this work. Yeah. I, I just was like, oh, why was I not doing this a decade ago? This is, and they went, we'd sit, I sat with my brother, like editing it, and I'd say, right, I want this clip and I want this clip. And you put them together, and the, the, like, the, the two images, this is like such basic film stuff, but it was really fascinating to me doing practice in that way. Like, you put the two disparate films together, and that somehow they talk to each other in a really fascinating way that you couldn't have foreseen with just writing the script. Yeah. So it, it, it was like mind blowing for me. And, it gave me an opportunity. Um, so the, the the film's called Three Ways to Dine Well. And the idea was that I did it about eating and horror. Because it was something I was interested in. Like, I'm really easily grossed out with eating. Really easily grossed out. And find a lot of food stuff really disgusting. And I thought it's a kind of... Eating is a primal thing that lots of people will understand and recognise as being kind of gross or weird or to do with power. So I thought that would be a good way for people who would just who just like horror films, they get to watch something that's just about different gross ways that people eat stuff and they could take that. But what I was actually interested in is saying, look at all these films that women made. <laughs> 
which is what I'm really doing. Yeah. <laughs> Look at all these films. Did you know she edited that? Did you know she shot that? Did you know she composed that music? And that's what I'm actually interested in. But right. it gets to be wrapped up within the nice shiny thing of like a Sammy in audition puking in a dog's bowl. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it does work on so many levels. Um <laughs> Including that kind of invitation to like watch more stuff, um, yeah. But also to yeah to to see stuff that you know in a new way, you know. Like yeah. again, because just a couple of the films like His House, which I thought yeah. was fantastic. I really so love that good. movie. Um, yeah. And then you just it's you see it in a new context, and it's not it's not you know disavowing anything that of the previous conception but it's just adding a new way of seeing that film which i just thought was both in terms of the the women involved and how yeah. they might be involved because it's obviously like seeing the image and then i think it's production design in that isn't it like yeah. you know so you're looking at the production design in a way that you wouldn't yeah. have been when you were watching the film and also yeah. the, the female character who's eating and you see yes. you know like there's so many things going on in that in that it's like it's really kind of exciting and yeah my kind of handwritten notes are always like oh um, this is great. Um, it's kind of it's kind of left a legacy of um, noticing people sat at dining tables in horror films for me though, because I've I've now really come to the conclusion that dining tables are often the place that both um, a lot of exposition is delivered while people are eating their tea. Yeah. But it's also where the biggest power games usually happen. Like it's this kind of vulnerable, intimate moment when you're supposed to be eating with someone and like. I could have added like another 40 examples to the dining table sequence and I still see them all. It's something I can't unsee now. Yeah. You know. Interesting. Um, one film I thought was interesting because obviously you spend a bit of time with certain films yeah. was um, was Jordan Peele's Us. Yes. Um, which is, it was so nice, I think, because I think it's a film that, you know, just sort of not got dropped or kind of dropped off the radar quickly but it's certainly it's certainly because it was so different I think to get out yeah it sort of got dismissed yeah. and wasn't really reckoned with in terms of what it was doing as a piece of work in the same way because yeah I think again it was intentionally a messier film than, than get out which is such a such a tightly controlled yeah and it's so yeah. lean in terms of its concept and its execution whereas us is necessarily messier so it was really nice to sort of to see to see yeah. you giving it the time in terms of like well actually that this is this is already a film that is worthy of of almost going back to and, and kind of and really taking it seriously in terms of what it's doing um which i guess it was just really nice because i remember seeing it and thinking this is this is really exciting and i don't really know yeah. why you know I, I, yeah I, I love it. Us is one of like my top five horror films of all time. I think it's brilliant. And you know, if I say I only like really certain kinds of horror, but um, Us is like on the money for my kind of horror. Like it's joyful. It's weird. It's um, a bit funny yep. in places. <laughs> and then it's like really uber-violent uber and then it's hilarious. Um, I was down in London when it first came out at the cinemas and I went to see it at the Curzon Soho and I went with, and it was a packed audience and it was absolutely amazing because the scary bits were so scary and the funny bits were so funny and the audience was like crying with fear or screaming and it was brilliant. 
and um, I this section that I had on us was originally twice as long <laughs> because there's so much I could say just about eating in that film. It's really, it's just beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it became really apparent that we can't just have a massive section entirely on us in like a 20 minute film. It doesn't really work. But it does, you know, even just as it is, it kind of, yeah, it, it, it brings to the four films that, doing that thing to go back to the start it's kind of it's already correcting the narrative and not yeah. you know not thinking about a canon but saying actually like yeah you know let's take these films seriously um and i think that's what your work does from what i've experienced of it in just mm-hmm. like like i say really exciting ways like just drawing attention to work that has previously been overlooked or is just taken for granted i think a lot of the films that yeah. you sort of mentioned are taken for granted oh this is what this film does because it's got a male director Whereas yeah. it's actually, no, well, let's go back and watch it again and know that a woman wrote it. Yeah. You know, because yeah. um, it completely upends all of your all of your expectations in terms of, yeah, just how you've seen films previously. And I think that that for me is, is really exciting because that, like you say, that that learning and relearning is is kind of what I'm in, what I'm in academia for if I don't understand like not having a curious mind and being an academic like like you should be curious and like wanting to learn all the time or just it doesn't have to be stuff has to be shiny and new and contemporary it's different ways of looking at things and just going oh I never thought about it like that that's that's what academia is for me yeah me too me too (laughs) well it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today uh thank you so much for your time um Great work on the book. Uh, Thank you. Great work on the newsletter and the great work on the, the film. And I look forward to, to seeing the knitting one when it lands. <laughs> yes. Hopefully at some point next year. Hopefully. Great. Well, yeah. Thank you so much, Alison, for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Alison for her time. I had a really, really fun time talking to to you um yeah really appreciate you coming on the podcast dario what did you make of our chat well it was great to listen to alison's voice again because we used to work together back in the day at at leeds met and uh yeah it was uh it was a pity i I couldn't make the interview for various kind of work related uh reasons but yeah it just reminded me reminded me just how interesting and curious and lively and inspiring a presence alison always was i mean we were at the same point um in our careers at, at Leeds Met. And, you know, that thing, ha- we, we kind of got lumped together almost as a double act at like open days as the young members of staff and then ended up doing more teaching than all of the uh, all of the full-timers, do you know what I mean, as a part-timer. And, you know, and then got annoyed when jobs came up and they went to, you know, people who were, you know, from the outside. It's a typical academic story where... You know the 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 part timer does all the work, and then when the job comes up, it goes it goes elsewhere. But you know, I never sort of doubted how how brilliant Alison was and would would have a, an amazing career. Particularly, I think you know in her um, adoption there, which obviously has been bolstered over time with getting a job, and you know that 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 question of academic confidence and being being able to sort of say, okay, now I'm in the position where I can kind of do what I want to do, and I'm not just the new kid on the block and has to do all the 101 teaching, which is great. And yeah, the, the, so much of interest there, particularly I think at the beginning, kind of talking about the value of research and, you know, that question we all have to face right now, how how valuable are the humanities? 
because we're from the outside we're always getting told that the humanities are not valuable compared to stem and then when you think about feminist analysis or feminist analysis of horror that's probably even lower on the you know humanities and arts kind of maslow hierarchy of needs according to the government about what's necessary and what you know that great attitude towards this is in, in, this is important work and actually I don't care. I'm not going to argue with you about that. And and these are the reasons why this is important. And I love that that sort of move into a more accessible kind of frame of mind. And then also the methods of aggregating and producing research and talking about ideas and talking about horror or whatever it might be in a way that's in-depth, but also accessible and embracing the notion of the personal narrative because I think it's exactly what we've done over the last five or six years through the podcast and it's made it's turned our heads in terms of like recognizing just how problematic or can you know controlling in many ways not controlling in a surveillance sense but but maybe sort of restrictive the, the academic journal process can be and also you know, just really interesting on the on 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 trying to blog because it's like one thing I always have in my mind that idea of blogging is a great idea and setting up your own wo- um, website, but no, you know, the engagement of, of that is so low. You have to have a very specific kind of idea, and it has to catch on. And I think you're almost better. I've changed my mind about this. You're almost better so, just sort of doing one-off articles for different places that are already established, right, rather than sort of starting from scratch yourself. But you know, just on the on the, the video essay is really fascinating. That that connection between horror and food is uh, yeah really interesting to watch. And and like even for somebody for somebody who's not particularly into horror again, but in, into it in the same way you are. That is, if I see a great movie, whether it's horror or not, I'm interested in it. But those those kinds of analyses that sort of talk about that that idea of the way into a particular genre like horror that that gives you a different understanding of it is really interesting and what and the way it was put together what i really liked as well was in the in the sort of bottom corners where she's giving the titles of the movies and she, but she's also referencing the female contributors to those movies who weren't necessarily the director they could have been the writer or the producer or the production designer that was really interesting to me because it had a very specific effect it was like oh is that right? Should should you not just mention the the should not the director be the person that is there, whether it's a man or a woman? Should that not matter? So it's kind of like on the one hand, there's that that sense of my auteurism kind of came out in a way, and I don't consider myself particularly an auteurist, but I'm still kind of you know programmed to think that in a way. But also, I really like that that was almost a political decision in terms of foregrounding female filmmakers in the presentation of films rather than necessary, necessarily the director. So it does that thing of what you were talking about of decentering the auteur, but also giving the, the political act of giving a voice to contributors to a, a film who wouldn't necessarily necessarily have been given that voice, which I think obviously if you're coming from a feminist perspective in your analysis, then you know that's one of the things that you, you can do. So it's a great interview. Well done. Well, thanks, man. Um yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, I think it's just a really fascinating person. I think you know, there's certainly a kind of kindred spirit in terms of the the approach of like this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it, and sort of just you know the, the confidence in you know that we have with the podcast that it is of value and it is meaningful, and we know that the way we do it is 
is is is a, is a good and as as equal a way as, as as anyone else's. You know, it's kind of and that's what I really like about Alison's work is it's not it's not presenting a superiority argument. It's just bringing bringing new ways of thinking to the table. You know, which is exactly like you say what that video essay work does. It's it does kind of you know sort of challenge your conditioning, but also present it in a way of like, well, why can't it? Why can't this be a way of doing it? You know, that doesn't because obviously there's you know there's female filmmakers from all different departments including directors so it's not it doesn't get rid of the director it just it just brings other things into discussion and yeah like you say a very subtle way which is always kind of present which i think is really interesting so yeah it's yeah i've really yeah really enjoyed talking to her and i'm glad that yeah that that she, that she came on the pod and yeah if if there's anyone out there who's interested in newsletters Alison's is definitely one of the best because it does that thing of it's she's just you know She's just a smart person, you know, so there's always interesting ideas at play, even when she's just being very sort of open and sort of spontaneous in terms of her thoughts that it's it's hard to not just get interested in things that she's she's bringing up almost kind of without meaning to, which is really exciting. Yeah. And that's the thing about the personal as well. And sort of be, she was quite sort of forceful in sort of saying, yeah, people have said to me, I'm not they're not happy with having that, you know, the personal element of it in the work and I think that you know I'm, I'm writing a, a book or I'm editing a book with chapters in that I've written that that is actually encouraging of authors to be to use a, a, an academic term autoethnographic about it but it's more along the lines of why why are you doing this you know in terms of podcasting because academic podcasters don't do it for the money and it's very different it's very difficult st- still even now to get podcasts recognized as proper academic research so there must be some other kind of layering of meanings and reasons why why academics do do podcasting or people in general just do podcasting when they're not making any money. You know, part of it is about personal expression. Part of it is about space for curiosity and working through ideas, which is stuff we've talked about an awful lot. And I think that, you know, like you say, I think Alison sort of re- reflects that mindset, which is something that in, in some ways you're still having to fight for in in academia yeah there's certainly that idea isn't there that kind of long held that you know if it's if you're making it subjective or personal then it's not you know it's not rigorous or it's not critical in a kind of and i think a lot of that comes from things around the internet where there has been a huge rise in subjectivity and personal expression which is not very good but it's matched by academic research that's supposedly although impossibly objective that is also not very good you know so i think it's it's again it's a lack of criticality and engagement with what might be changing and what might be doing rather than just kind of rejecting it outright. And, you know, I do genuinely think we need more academics like Alison, who's just, like she says at the, the start, not giving a shit, like this is what I'm going to do and and finding the space. And it, what's, what's interesting is that she's found a space through good work, you know, across a variety of different mediums, um, which is really exciting because it's, 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 it's again, kind of that, that, like you say, that inspiring proof that you can do it. And a reminder for people like us who are doing it, that our path is as valid as, as, any, as anything else and certainly in terms of the way academia academia might be moving it feels good to be part of a, of a gang of people who are kind yeah, of similarly yeah, minded for sure definitely this conversation probably to be to be expanded and you know amplified in the in the bonus episode which is coming up next so yeah please if you enjoy the show please consider joining us on patreon it's you know as, as little as two pounds a month to get access to the newsletter which is you know, it seems to get longer every month, thanks to the the, the breadth of Neil's recommendations, particularly. Um, 
But yeah, no, it, I mean, it's a space that we've enjoyed writing in in a similar vein um, because it allows us to sort of go into off into different directions and also just talk about other stuff apart from films that we, we, we've engaged with. But um, yeah, in terms of support for the show, if you enjoy what we do, um, please consider, you know, dropping us the price of a coffee a month just to say thanks for your work because it is... It is very time-consuming to put on the cinematologist. We love it. We're not complaining. But yeah, just helping with it, with running costs and showing showing that sort of sense of support for independent media. I think you know you just got to remember how much people you know don't even think about dropping you know seven ninety nine or whatever it is on on Netflix and 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 this kind of thing. But in, in, I think in, independent media is always worth support supporting if you do use it so that's our little plug for ourselves and if you can't afford it that's totally fine don't worry just give us shares on social media you know that's as much payment as anything else i think but neil yeah great work great interview uh, as usual um really nice to sort of see the the bit it's always nice when you get a kind of bit of chemistry and interplay which i think your interview had there rather than just sort of straight q a thanks man that means a lot thank you yeah i really enjoyed it and thanks to alison for coming on Great, so yeah, come and join us on the Patreon chat for some ranting, maybe even a bit of swearing, you never know. But until next time, on the main show, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>